0: No purchase necessary. Void work prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: <laughs> well,
0: ladies and gentlemen,
1: can I please have your attention? you! dear listeners this is Jonah Goldberg host of the Remnant podcast brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media I am talking to you from a hotel room in Bozeman Montana long story there um but always one step ahead of those uh those Texas Rangers so everything's fine and um uh it's early here but um uh you know, I, I am nothing if not a servant of uh, the remnant listeners, and so we are doing a podcast from here. There may be some dog interruptions once my wife emerges and brings the dogs with her, but we'll just deal with that when it happens. Um, in a pinch, um, I got uh, my friend, my colleague, um, um, a guy who, because I owe so much money to, um, I have to have him on whenever he asks, uh, Michael Strain, the head of economic stuff at the American Enterprise Institute, and, uh, uh, to come here and tell us, uh, why we should all buy gold. Michael, welcome back to the remnant.
0: Thank you, Jonah. I'm happy to be here. I hope that you're enjoying the holiday season. I see you're sporting a Starbucks Christmas cup, which is outstanding.
1: I am. I am. And I, I say we should tell listeners, uh, that, we were about to start a few minutes ago, and you said, "Hold on, hold on, I can't start yet." And You got up and you went, and you went and turned on your um, miniature light-up Christmas tree in the background. So we have a real festive feeling going on here. And if you'd like, it's very, I could it's wear, very festive. I could put my red duff beer hat back on if that makes you um even more excited. <laughs> um, so, uh, oh. um, where to begin? Um, how about we begin at the beginning. If, we can if, begin
0: at the beginning. One thing that I think we should cover. I know this is not yes. what you want the focus to be, but yes. uh we should. We should reserve a little time at the end for Battlestar Galactica and how wrong you have been for so long. And that's oh, all really? I'll you, say you now. Want, you want to go there? Okay, all
1: right. fine. That's all fine. I'll say
0: now, and we could just we can just revisit that when uh, okay. when we've covered uh, covered 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 the topic of the day.
1: You know, you know, Michael. There's a there's a long standing. Finding in social science research, which you should know since you know how to do all that, you know, heteroskenasticity stuff that says that if you find yourself in the same camp as James Pethokoukis on pop culture questions too often, it means you're wrong. And, um, I just want to put that out there, let that percolate and, um, uh, we'll we'll circle back to that, but you're you you. The depths seem to be of his
0: wrongness are growing in in, in in recent days. He's he's a big champion of the new foundation television series, which is an abomination, uh, well, among other we'll, errors well, of judgment.
1: I, I I I have I have opinions on that, but I think the the growth of his wrongness is creating a certain gravitational pull, and it's pulling you into its orbit. So we'll just we'll just we, we'll just leave it there for now. Um, let's say you're at a wedding, right? You're if you're in your wife's family side of the family, and you sit down and you're with a bunch of educated but not super wonky people. And your, you know, your wife's uncle Bob, who's a retired cardiologist, says, What do you do? And you say, Well, I'm an economist. And he says, Oh, really? How's the econ- what's the what's going on with the economy? How would you answer?
0: Uh, well, it's a good question. It's it's a, it is an unusually uh complicated question because the economy is very unusual uh because uh, of you know really two factors we're we're emerging from this pandemic and. The pandemic isn't isn't fully over, obviously, but but, uh, it's certainly impacting the economy less than it did uh, when it began. Um, And we are engaging uh, in um, uh, a a different regime of macroeconomic policy, by which I mean the size of President Biden's March stimulus uh, was enormous relative to uh, the, uh, needs of the, of the aggregate economy. And so that's also having, having big impacts. And, uh, if I had to, if I had to, to pick one word to describe, uh, the economy, uh, for, uh, for uncle Bob, who, uh, uh, would be quite drunk
1: if, uh, if this, if this were actually, um, uh, happening in real life. But you need to know he has a fantastic beach house. He could lend you guys. So you have to impress him. That's just so you That's, know true. That, right?
0: That's, That's true. That's right? true. You want to impress them. But you never know when you need a cardiologist. I mean, that could that could come in handy. There's that. You know, you know, even, even an intoxicated one. Um, the one word I would use is imbalance. Uh, and that word doesn't really tell you all that much. Um, and so I would add a couple more words. Uh, it'll surprise you that I'll be using the word supply and demand. I would say there's a big imbalance of the economy between supply and demand. Um, what does that mean? Uh, that means that that uh consumers demand for goods is uh, extremely, extremely elevated. Uh, people want stuff. People are buying stuff. A big part of the reason that they're buying stuff is because the government has given them so much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, stimulus checks, uh, unemployment benefits that are much more generous than anything the United States has ever done, uh, big expansion of the of the of the child tax credit, um, all of those factors and others are putting money into people's pockets. In addition, because of the, uh, unusual circumstances of, 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 of the last, uh, year and a half or so, uh, for long stretches of time, households were spending less money, um, most, uh, most acutely during the spring and summer of 2020, there were many fewer opportunities to spend money uh, because businesses were 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 operating under under social distancing restrictions and people didn't want to leave their homes and and, and this sort of stuff. And so households built up around two and a half trillion dollars of excess savings. Uh, that is also helping to fuel uh, households' demand for uh, for stuff. They want to buy. They want to buy more stuff. And so and so you've got you've got the demand side of the economy where where people People, people, you know, want
1: to buy stuff. Um, in part because of right, their just, incomes are high. Also because they, we've, they've substituted buying things for doing things, right? Because travel's been suppressed for eighteen months or whatever. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Parties. So spending you
0: know, on like exactly. Um, th- 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 so one reason they want to buy stuff is because their incomes are high. One reason they want to buy stuff is because their savings are high. One reason that they wanted to buy stuff was because they didn't want to. to to buy services, right? They didn't want to right. go to restaurants. They didn't want to travel and do that sort of stuff. Um, as the economy has been reopening and the pandemic has been receding, uh, service spending has been improving, um, and so service spending is is you know looking you know, reasonably close to normal. Um, and that's also you know fueling uh, the demand side of the economy. You see this show up in the labor market. You see uh, demand for workers is is just off the charts. Uh, there are a record number of job openings. Businesses really want workers. Um, uh, businesses often complain that they can't find workers. You often hear about labor shortages. Um, the, the, the right kind of knee-jerk reaction to that is to be very skeptical um, of businesses' complaints about not being able to find workers. But in this case, that skepticism is not warranted. Businesses are putting their money where their mouths are. Wages in the economy are growing at around 5%. In some sectors, uh, like leisure and hospitality, wages uh, are growing at, at double digits. So businesses are really putting their money where their mouths are to attract and retain workers, and they're having a hard time doing it. Um, uh, and so that's 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 the kind of demand side of the economy. Demand for goods and services on the part of consumers, demand for workers on on the part of businesses. The supply side of the economy, Simply cannot keep up. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about supply chain issues from the pandemic. There certainly are supply chain issues from the pandemic, but the main reason why we have uh, cargo ships lined up outside ports is not because you know COVID restrictions make it harder to unload the cargo ships or anything like that. The main reason is because there are just way more cargo ships outside those ports. Uh, ports are processing more cargo than they normally do. Um, There's just way more uh, stuff to unload. In the labor market, we have seen uh, the rate at which uh, adults participate in the workforce show very little improvement from the summer of 2020. Um, Workers uh, really are not coming back into into the labor market uh, at nearly the rates that you would expect given how fast wages are growing. Um, That is, again, a combination of the pandemic and um, public policy. Uh, Workers are having um, a hard time uh, coming back, in many cases, when they have kids. Uh, School districts are still shutting classrooms. This fall, both of my kids were each home for a 10-day stretch because some other kid in their room got covid um, you know, even though both of my kids had a negative PCR test on day five and a negative PCR test on day seven, you know, they still had to stay home for 10 days. You know, that dynamic is making it hard for people to come back. People don't want to get COVID. That's making it hard for some people to come back. But also, uh, uh the same, uh, excess savings that are driving consumer demand are also leading workers to be choosier. They're, they're in less of a, less of a hurry to get a job. Um, and the, uh, uh, the extremely generous unemployment benefits uh, that workers could receive until September. Also, we're keeping, we're keeping workers on the sidelines. So um, uh, the supply side of the economy just, just can't keep up um, uh, both with respect to supply chains uh, and, and with respect to, to the supply of, 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 of workers. And this imbalance between demand and supply uh, has led to, Troublingly high rates of price inflation. Uh, when demand goes up and supply can't keep up, prices go up, and 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 and, and that's exactly what we're seeing. And so, uh, uh, you know, we have we have inflation. It is it is it is a problem. Uh, households are um, feeling it. It is it is it is it is leading to very low levels of uh, consumer sentiment uh, uh, about the economy and about their financial situations. Um, we're seeing nominal wages grow really rapidly, but inflation is, is, is really eroding the purchasing power of the, of those wage increases. So this is hurting workers. Um, and it's driven by, uh, too much supply too much demand in, in, in the face of, uh, of, of, of supply, uh, that can't
1: keep up. Okay. So a couple of things, one, you're, Wife's uncle Bob has now fallen asleep in the wedding cake. Um, that's mostly to, due to the to the to the half a bottle of whiskey he drank during our. Conversation, no, that's, that's entirely fair. It's just you know, look, I, I would have stopped you if I didn't think it was a good answer. It was just it was a long answer, that's fine. You know, um, it was, it was, someone's got to keep right you line. honest. You know, because you're like it was the right. You're, you're part of management today, AI, and this is one of the few opportunities that I get to. Uh, you know, crack the whip and and speak for the proletariat at AI <laughs> against the ruling classes. So, um, second, the only thing I, I, I want to push back on a little bit, I mean, I'm sure you probably agree with me, but, like, to some extent, is, is when you said that the reason why there are all these ships parked out isn't because of COVID things, blah, 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 it's just because there are a lot of ships, right? But, like, isn't part of the issue... Um, that we, when I say we, I mean Western civilization, basically, and actually the globe, have been running incredibly efficient uh, uh, supply supply uh, supply chains and and in, you know, uh, and 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 real time delivery inventory practices for a while, and those things are it's like a it's like a race car, right? They're like when they work they're incredibly cool and work really really well but they have to be finely tuned all the time because if you just mess up one of the components they just kind of fall apart and so like we have a mutual friend i won't name him on the podcast but um uh, uh he's on the board of ai and he was telling me about some of the some of the companies that he works with and he was walking me through all of the supply chain problems where like It's not just that it's difficult to get the thing from point A to point B and then get someone to pick it up from point B to point C, that once it's picked up, that empty container thing needs to get back to point F someplace else. And if you don't have the bandwidth to get that thing there, then the person who's waiting for the next thing, they can't fill that up with the rubber shower shoes to get it to someplace else. And it becomes cascading. It's sort of like when there's a bad snowstorm and a thousand planes are are, uh, stranded you know, in various places and it screws up flights for the next six days because they can't pre-position the planes for the next day and then they're not there and then there are no connections and flight crews aren't where they're supposed to be. And does that tell us something about going forward, you know, particularly when you add in the geopolitical stuff about China and, you know, the chip thing, which is a complicated story, but does it tell us that maybe the amount of You know, it's sort of like a business that can only make money if they have X number of sunny days, so they can have enough people outside. Does it tell us something about our supply chain setup that we are just counting on too many things going right for too long, and that maybe we need to reorganize some of that? Not through industrial policy or anything, but like you know, people just bringing some of that stuff closer to home. You know, filling warehouses with more stuff than they used to. Um, Or do you think that we're just going to get past this? And I have a follow up on this that's more broad.
0: Um, yeah. So, uh, so first of all, yes, you're obviously right that, that we have had um, supply side issues that uh, that you know have have been driven by factors other than extremely uh, elevated consumer demand for for goods. Um, uh, semiconductors, obviously, is 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 the probably the, the most prominent example of that, uh, uh, where we're just not making enough. Enough chips um, to, uh, to to uh, to to uh, manufacture automobiles at the rate they need to be, they need to be manufactured. Uh, there are there are other examples as well, of course. Uh, and this has this has started a, a debate about you know whether our our production processes are are too efficient um, and should we should we kind of rebalance away from efficiency and toward uh, resiliency. Mm -hmm. Um, I am, uh, skeptical of that for several reasons. Um, one reason I'm skeptical that that is the right thing for businesses to do is because I don't think it makes sense to optimize, uh, anything around a once in a century unexpected event. Um, you know, uh, you know, let, let's say we ran out of hospital capacity somewhere. Um, does that mean that we should expand hospital capacity by 25% and for the next 100 years let 25% of of emergency room beds sit, sit empty? You know, no, it, do, it doesn't mean that. Um, you know, let's say that people want to be six feet apart uh, on the subway. Um, does that mean that we need to uh you know have subway uh have have trains that are six times as long and you know just have uh all of that extra extra capacity for the next hundred years in case we have a pandemic no of course of course of course that would be the wrong thing to do um so you know uh if everything had gone right uh with global supply chains and with, and, and with these sorts of uh, complex production processes um during the pandemic then that would have been a sign that 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 those processes were not appropriately calibrated prior to the pandemic. Um, so we shouldn't overlearn the lessons from the last year and a half. Uh, if things were working uh, well at a normal economy, um, then I think we should presume that they're gonna work well again once we're back to a normal economy. And We're not there now, but we will eventually be there. Uh, the second reason why uh, I'm skeptical uh, is because um, you know the the world didn't uh, uh, organize itself the way it, it the way it was in in, in 2019 by by accident uh, the world existed in, as it did in 2019 for a reason and the reason is that businesses discovered they could make more money if this is the way that they they organize their production processes um, and you know that's that's going to be a factor, I think, uh, that that, re- that reasserts itself. And so, if you have if you have some business uh, out there that really, really, really wants to focus on resiliency, um, and that raises costs and eats into profits, you know, some competitor is going to come along and 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 say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to be a little more efficient than that business, and their profits are going to be higher. And and in a competitive market you know, I think we're going to, you know, find ourselves kind of getting back to where we were, um, even if, you know, that's something that, that right now uh, people are, 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 are second guessing. Um, I think the same thing is true, by the way of, you know, will we permanently be, be working from home and, you know, will everything be different and, and all those sorts of stuff? You know, I think, I think the there are powerful social and economic forces that, that, that led to the world looking like it did in 2019. We should expect those forces to reassert themselves. You know, mm-hmm. ergo we should expect, you know, maybe a gradual return back to, back to, back to how that looked, but, 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 but certainly a return nonetheless. Um, a, a third, a third issue I have with, with a lot of what's being suggested around resiliency is it's not obvious to me that, that, uh, that moving everything to North America would actually make production processes more resilient. Uh, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the fact that, that we have global supply chains seems to me to provide some insurance uh, in case something bad happens somewhere in the world, <laughs> you know, that, that, that you know, things can still be on track in other parts of the world you know, if we, if we moved everything to, to Arizona and if, and if Arizona had, you know, some catastrophe, then we're, then, you know, we're totally screwed and, 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 it's not more, we're not, we're not, we're not in a situation that, that, that has increased resiliency. Um,
1: I can okay, keep so, going. Yeah, no, I want to, I want to push back again, one small thing. And then you, in your second part of your answer, you kind of fell into my trap. So I'll get to that. I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> um, Look I, I generally I think your point about how look in a when things are back to normal to one extent or another, if a more if a company thinks that they can have more efficient supply chains and make more money doing it that way that they'll do that and that'll be a competitive pressure to to not have people stockpiling you know toilet paper and warehouses that it sit there for ten. It's a
0: conservative point.
1: yeah, no it's, it's I a made good that point point for you. I appreciate that. It's so rare to hear something conservative leave your lips so that's great to hear. <laughs> um, but then secondly, um, uh, I think that the issue is less about putting everything in North America than getting a lot more stuff out of China. And you can have stuff being done in Vietnam or having stuff being done um, in Australia or whatever, which is still very far away, but the the risk premium of China is significant. And I, I've talked to a bunch of people in the private sector about this, is that like, just given the direction China is going, we'd rather hedge up, hedge that risk by getting some of these operations out of there because they're bad actors and they're going to get mm-hmm. worse. And I and I think that's true. Mm-hmm. And having chips made in Mexico and in Texas and in Costa Rica or whatever, I, I, I take your point entirely about diversifying the portfolio of sources. But you know, but you can do that while also. Shrinking the slice of your portfolio that comes from China, and I think there are there are yeah, geostrategic well, China, reasons for doing that.
0: Yeah, so Ch- China, I, th- I think I think this debate is often confused um, because the issue of China is confounded with these other issues. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of you know national conservatives or conservative populists or economic nationalists or whatever we call them, you know, along with you know, many 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 Democrats who mm-hmm. uh, who want manufacturing back in Michigan and you know, they, they say China is a bad actor and China's doing bad things and China's on a bad trajectory. Ergo, all of our manufacturing in China should go back to Michigan. And I don't agree with that. Um, I do agree that China is becoming an increasingly risky place to do business. Uh, I don't know why manufacturing processes can't move from China to Vietnam. I don't know why they have to move from China to Michigan. Um, and the same thing is true uh, among, uh, in, in the debate over resiliency, um, it, 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 it may be and likely is a very good business decision to start shifting away from, from China, um, but that doesn't mean that
1: we should, that doesn't necessarily mean we should abandon efficiency. Um, right. No, uh, I'm totally uh, with you there. I, I, I think I was just making the point that you agree with, which is that a lot of time when people talk about this resiliency thing or, uh, you know, the anti-free trade stuff, what they're really doing is they're using China as a way to as a Trojan horse for a bunch of arguments that have nothing to do with this mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, to, to me, it's very reminiscent of the old, you know, you know, stuff about we have to wean ourselves from foreign oil. And mm-hmm. what people really meant by that, you know, what Democrats meant by that was therefore we need windmills, right? And what um, um, and what Republicans or what conservatives meant by that was um, more oil exploration here at home. And what everybody meant by that was not oil from Canada, um, but oil from the Middle East, right? And so there's, there's yeah. these warring euphemisms and you had to like – sit people down and sort of do a Socratic method with them. It's like, what is the problem you think you're addressing and what is the solution and how does it address that? Because everyone is using bumper stickers to talk about this stuff. So I agree with you. But here's where you fell fell into my trap. So um, I think that economists, broadly speaking, smell like elderberries, but that's not relevant right now. I think that economists, broadly speaking, um, uh, get a bad rap you know, there's this, there's this straw man argument that people make about, oh, you talk about homo economicus and you reduce people just to their um, economic self-interest, but human beings are much more broadly, you know, uh, motivated than just ra- just a narrow definition of rational financial self-interest. And I think you agree with that. You know, as a pretty sincere Catholic and patriotic guy, I think you agree that you're, you're more than just an economic machine, cons- consuming machine. But... It's also, in defense of John Stuart Mill, he never meant it that way. He was saying, if you're going to like do modeling, here's how you look at it. You know, Here's how an economic actor would behave. It does illuminate things, but it doesn't tell you the whole picture. And he would be the first to concede that. So it's always been a straw man used by different people. And I, I find it used more and more by the guys on the right that we're talking about than the people on the left these days for interesting reasons. But that said, I do think you and your ilk, I shouldn't say you and your ilk, just your ilk, um, do tend to give shorter shrift to culture than it necessarily deserves. And that you have different countries have have different econ- economic systems in part because they just have different cultures. Um, the Swedes are much more comfortable with large bureaucratic welfare states and all that kind of stuff. I think in part it stems from a culture of Of essentially ethnic homogeneity, that there's a much higher tolerance for socialism when everybody's grandmother looks and sounds alike, and you think, well, that guy's grandmother is just like my grandmother. Of course, we should give her a check, right? And that's one of the reasons why these countries have such a hard time dealing with immigration because it pings bad parts of people's brains. We don't need to get into all that. Um, So, I guess. But my question for you is, you know, we've had lots of what. You people call exogenous events uh, that have changed American culture in various ways, right? The New Deal created a whole generation of savers who liked the government um, in various ways, um, you know, basically moved the Overton window to the left on all sorts of government stuff for two generations. Is it possible that when you're talking about not overlearning all of these things, you may be right in terms of the policy proposals that are being thrown around out there, but what if like one of the reasons why we can't seem to get back into a steady state, you know, it's sort of like when you're wobbly on a bike trying to get right again. It has less to do necessarily with the supply chain issues um, and the inflation stuff and more to do with that. All of the economic models you guys have been working with were predicated on a fairly well-known and understood cultural norms and habits of a society expressed through economic activity. And they've just all been disrupted. And we don't know, we have no idea how much or when or if they're going to return to normal. When you say, you know, let's not overlearn this because we're going to return to normal. What if the new normal just isn't something that is reflected in the assumptions built into the models today? That seems extremely unlikely. Um,
0: But, you know, certainly plausible. I mean, I think, I think it, I think it would help to, uh, to move down one level in, in
1: abstraction. So, uh, I'm, uh, Dude, I do, that's I'm not, not fair. Saying. Cause like, if we stay at my 30,000 foot level of abstraction, <laughs> I can go toe for toe with you. If you bring this down to like <laughs> empirical data-driven stuff, you're going to screw me, but all right, go ahead. You're the guest. Uh,
0: quickly, uh, seven times 33, uh, 22,
1: two 20, two. 20, Shut up
0: go I can't, I can't do it I can't do it either um two thirty one will. Th- <laughs> things certainly will be will be different um in, in in some respects for example you know i i do not expect uh workforce participation to recover um fully uh a lot of people um are you know in their early 60s, some in their late 50s, they have enough money for retirement, they're planning on holding on until they're 65 or 66. And, you know, they've done two years of this. And, um, you know, they're just, you know, not, they don't want to, you know, they, they don't want to go back. Um, and that's going to mean that our workforce participation rate uh, uh, does not recover to where it was in in February of 2020, the month before the lockdowns began. Um, I expect that, uh, the pandemic will change, uh, many, uh, or at least several industries. Um, I think telemedicine is likely here to stay. Uh, that's such a productivity enhancing, um, tool for the medical industry. It's so, it's so much more convenient for, uh, people who are feeling sick to just, you know, go to their doctor over Zoom um, you know, that is going to stick. I think, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the share of retail spend, spending that, 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 that happens online is going to be much higher than it was before the pandemic, uh, permanently. Um, before the pandemic, you know, I would fly to California for, you know, a, a two hour meeting. Um, I don't anticipate ever doing that again. Uh, you know, flying yeah. to California from Washington—that's three days of your life. Um, and uh, and and Zoom just just works, just works too well. Um, you know, I think that there has been a cultural shift among white collar professionals regarding working from home. Uh, you know, I if, if people used to work from home, uh, you know, two days a month before the pandemic. Um, maybe they work from home three days a month. Uh, uh, now that's a, that's, that's a 50% increase. That's a huge increase. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not at all suggesting that, um, that, uh, you know, a, a, and, and businesses, um, you know, businesses might, uh, you know, I'd be surprised if businesses, you know, completely change the way they do business, but businesses might say, Hey, you know, we need, we need more stockpiles. Um, you know, we need to, you know, build a warehouse or rent a warehouse and fill it up with stuff that we need. And, you know, that stuff can sit there and that's just going to be a business expense. Um, and you know, that doesn't mean we're going to relocate all of our production facilities to Michigan, but it does mean that if, you know, something happens, then we're going to have a stockpile of stuff that will allow us to try to try and stay on top of it. Um, these are all, uh, I think marginal changes. Um, you know, no, you know, none of these changes, uh, you know, w- will will lead to a world that that is, you know, obviously very different from the world in 2019. But there's, st- but there's still, you know, significant. Um, and uh, 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 you know, and so and so that's 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 kind of a fuller picture of what I mean. I you know, I I don't think. I don't think like every statistic and every metric is going to look the same as it did in, in 2019. But I think I think the pandemic will uh, lead to lead to marginal changes in the way we live and in the way we work and in the way businesses operate. Not you know kind of you know revolutionary wholesale you know what civilization am I in kind of changes.
1: You might be right. I mean, you're probably right. I mean, I, yeah, I don't think it's going to be like one of those episodes of the Twilight Zone or Fringe or, you know, where you wake up and just, you know, like technology is completely different. People work by different assumptions about, you know, all sorts of things. And the typical marriage is now with six and a half people. You know, I agree with you, it's not gonna (laughs) do that, but um, uh, the half is always very hard to work out. All right, so let's just change topics uh, somewhat. You had a piece, which I had missed, I, I was on the road otherwise you know I'm a, I'm a i'm a slavish reader of of michael strain uh but you had a piece doing something i haven't heard uh people do in a while which is uh keep praise on um nikki haley uh <laughs> uh and full disclosure you know i'm i'm friendly with her my wife worked for her um uh at the un and um um I've been somewhat critical of how she's of her political strategy of late. But uh, what, what what is your argument, and, and and why were you heaping praise on Nikki Haley?
0: Well, November was an interesting month uh, because um, a number of, of 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 people who you know may end up running for president in twenty twenty four gave speeches about about the economy. Uh, and about about economic issues and economic policies, and um, you know this, I think, is going to be, you know, you know, President Trump's political future is obviously you know looms you know quite large uh, on, on on the right, um, but I'm I'm seeing uh, the right as a group try and try and, you know take some steps toward working out its future. Uh, you know what parts of Trumpism should it keep? What parts should it discard? You know how can it be? You know how can parts of it be folded in? You know how can parts of it? You know what parts of it not fit? Um, and uh, there are a number of these, uh, uh, you know, conservative populists um, that are, uh, you know, quite critical of 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 markets and of. You know the kind of traditional conservative approach to to economic issues, um, and you know several of them spoke at this national conservatism conference uh, that was that was down in Florida um, uh, last month, and, uh, uh, y- y- and this was on display. You know, mm-hmm. you know, we need a you know Senator Rubio. We need a common good capitalism. You know, we need industrial. We need industrial policy you know, we need to make things in this country again, you know, calls for, you know, manufacturing revival, uh, you know, a, a discussion uh, about uh, the dangers of economic dynamism and how a dynamic economy is, is threatening uh, the uh, American dream uh, and actually locking people out of it, et cetera. Et cetera. You know, very, you know, you know, uh, influenced, I think, by by President Trump uh, and and by his views. Um, Nikki Haley gave a speech uh, at the Heritage Foundation. Um, I I believe it was the Margaret Thatcher lecture or something like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, she... It it was notable, I think, for two reasons. One, you know, she really... She she, she took this on, uh, you know, head-on. She... uh, she uh, wrote in her speech or, or, or said in her speech that uh, she feels pained to see some uh, conservatives uh, turning their backs on our principles. That's a quote from her. Um, you know, she took, a, she took a shot at Rubio. She said, uh, uh, I'm quoting here, the conservatives who claim capitalism no longer works. They conclude that economic freedom fails families and hurts workers. So they're trying to create a hybrid capitalism, a hybrid capitalism. It's all a sham. Um, that's a you know direct shot at this at this at this common good capitalism. She took on the uh, people on the right who were calling for um, industrial policy. She actually referred to them as socialism uh, as, as advocating for socialism light, which I thought was you know very aggressive. Um, and you know, but 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 what but what I you know what really struck me was um, her. Her, her, her optimism and her, you know, one of the things about, about conservative populism that I, that I find the most troubling and about President Trump is that it indulges this narrative of grievance and this narrative of victimization. It denies people agency, um, and I think that that is uh, empirically wrong uh, as a matter of economic analysis, but I also think it's, it's, it's really destructive. Um, for for leaders to be to be indulging those sorts of those sorts of narratives, and so, you know, she she told the story of South Carolina's textile industry, and she talked about how that industry was devastated by uh, technological advances, devastated by trade agreements, hurt workers, hurt families. Um, but she but she says that uh, that you know with the right policies um, and with hard work. Uh, South Carolina, the state of which she was she was governor, uh, was able to you know take towns that used to build textile mills and, and have them build medical devices and build airplanes. Um, and she said that uh, that um, that South Carolina has emerged much stronger. You know, not by trying to you know hold back the tide, but by trying to figure out how it could how it could uh, uh, use economic change. Uh, to its advantage and and, and, and to the and to the advantages of uh, uh, to the advantage of, of its citizens, she urged people to reject uh, the portrayal of Americans as victims with no control over their 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 lives and destinies. And that I think again is empirically correct. You know people you know people do have autonomy. People do have agency. Hard work does pay off people can advance through their own, through their own effort. Um, People are not victims. Uh, uh, I think, I think, I think that, that, that worldview is, is, is false uh, for typical workers. You know, not to say that there aren't people who really are victims. Of course there are people who are in horrible circumstances, but that's not the norm. Um, But it's just, sounds like you should write a book on
1: the American dream, not being dead or something. I
0: I, I should do that. I should think about that. Um, but it's just so, it's just, you know, we need, you know, this is how leaders used to talk. And, um, you know, you don't hear it. You don't hear it from either political party. Uh, no, uh, look, I, this, and, this, and, I find
1: this heartening. I, I've been searching for reasons to, to to praise Nikki for a while because I've found that she's just handled the Trump stuff so poorly since she left the administration. You know, she was the last, she was, other than our colleague Scott Gottlieb, Who's not a politician, really? I mean, I mean, we, we've seen him around the AI. He's a little bit of a politician, but you know, he's There's not. There's a, a lot
0: politician. of makeup. Um, not a politician,
1: and uh, he's a got very important. He's got a very important hair, but um, uh, Nikki came out of was the only was the only cabinet official who came out of that administration, not just with her reputation intact, but actually enhanced. And since then, I just think she's she's really had. Uh, a really hard time finding her groove, um, so I'm glad she's doing this. Yeah, that said, I mean, if you can't take shots at Marco Rubio, you might as well just get out of of politics at this point. I mean, um, I mean, he's not he's not Josh Hawley, um, but you know, and and I think Rubio, I think Rubio deep down in his heart is a decent human being and all that kind of stuff, but was uh, our friend Charlie Cook. I heard him say on a podcast recently that Rubio changes ideologies the way some people change socks. Um, And it's just so clearly aimed at trying to find, you know, it's like, you know, it's like the boyfriend who doesn't know how to deal with a relationship. So he just says, tell me the words that you want me to say, and I'll say those words, you know, and, that's how he's responded to so much of this populism stuff is just trying to like flail around and come come up with you know the magic buzz phrase and uh, the thing that drives me crazy about rubio in particular I, we both have very strong opinions about this nationalist conservative stuff and like the lunacy of of trying to turn uh, a landlocked Eastern European country called Hungary into the model for how we should organize our economy <laughs> and our society. But Rubio, in particular, what drives me crazy is that he constantly, particularly on his Twitter account, which you know, may be run by some teenager, but constantly is throwing around the words socialist and Marxist about the Biden administration. And the reason why that bothers me more from Rubio than from other sort of hackish politicians is that the one place where Rubio is a very, very serious person and a and, and a force for good in the world is when he talks about Cuba and about the problems with Cuba. And there he uses terms like socialist and Marxist accurately. And you lose, if you're going to be basically the point person in the U.S. Senate for trying to bring freedom and democracy to a, an authoritarian, you know, communist country, um, you need to take more care in how you use terms like communist and Marxist because by the transit of property, the way he uses rhetoric, basically what he's saying is that the, is that the island of Cuba is run by a regime that is no different than the Biden administration. And we all know that's not true. And it's it's, it's just squandering uh, you know, integrity and, and, and moral capital to play these kinds of games by pandering the, the base. But on the broader level, um like I go back and forth about this. Like, you know, as a twenty-year national review guy, as as a you know, guy who got a start at AEI. Um, I've always thought my part of my job description was to keep conservatives, keep the definition of conservatism correct and and in line with, you know, Reaganite, free market limited government all that kind of stuff but there have been in every every decade there's some as, there's some segment of the right that says oh that stuff is dead you know now we'll, let's go you know um do you know right wing social justice stuff and i have a hard time figuring out how seriously to take this stuff um like do you have a back of the envelope rule about you know, because it, it, certainly it's being pandered to more by politicians than any time in my lifetime. But the me, the nature of the pandering is so Rubio-esque for most of these people that it, it, the mood could change in a heartbeat if the political fortunes change it, which tells you it's not deep-seated the way you might fear it is. But do you have a... I mean, what is your concern level about all this new status right-wing stuff?
0: Um, I guess my concern level is that... Uh, I think it's, I think it's, you know, two inches deep, maybe. Um, I think some politicians are using it as a, you know, as a, as a kind of branding device and what they're trying to do is tap into, tap into that grievance, uh, that president Trump tapped into, uh, so effectively and, and, and stirred up and increased. Um, And and they're trying to, you know, put, you know, a policy agenda around it. Um, But it's not, you know, it doesn't, you know, what what's real in America is the susceptibility to that that posture of grievance. Right. I don't think, you know, there's actually this huge demand for you know, trade wars and a huge demand for for industrial policy and a huge demand for Buy American and a huge demand for reshoring and all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, but, um, you know, we have a presidential system and you know, my level of concern would elevate substantially if Josh Hawley won the 2024 nomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, he could it's three years away. Um, so, uh, you know, I am, you know, right now I'm taking it all with a, with a grain of salt. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the primaries for 2024 are going to be really important.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, i I'm very skeptical that Josh Hawley could do it, could get the nomination. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, it's sort of. Remember, I was, I, was, Chain- I was,
0: quite, I was quite skeptical that Donald Trump could get the
1: nomination in in, in Fair, in, in fair, 16. fair. Um, that is going to be a useful rhetorical retort for ve- for almost <laughs> any political skepticism about anything for a very long time. Um, but um, uh, you know, what was it? Dick Cheney used to have that thing about how if there was a one percent chance or a three percent chance that. Uh, Terrorists could get a nuclear weapon into the United States. You have to have a hundred percent effort to prevent that. Um, it's sort of like you know the, the how you would calculate risk about an asteroid impact and that kind of thing. You know, I don't, th- I do not think that Josh Holly is the equivalent of an asteroid or a nuclear explosion, but uh, it, it would. Be, it but would the be, analogy is is helpful. But the analogy is illuminating, right? As a <laughs> as, as as like, how seriously should you? I mean, because and, and there are people who are you know, who are conceivably just as bad as Josh Hawley, who would be seeking the nomination, including, you know, the former president of the United States, you know, Donald Trump, mm-hmm. um, which would be very bad. In a, and bad in ways that Hawley would not be bad. Because yeah. uh, we now know, you know, Trump now thinks that even Mark Meadows is a traitor. He thinks that, uh, you know, the tr- former attorney general, you know, Barr was a traitor. And, and the, the Supreme court is full of ungrateful, ungra- ungrateful traitors. Um, and so the kind of people that he would put in his administration, let's just not say, uh, sort of like, a, as Donald Trump said about Mexico, uh, the people on the hiring list would not be sending their best. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that would be really problematic, but we can, we can, we can get back to that another day. Um, You wanted to you wanted to blather on about uh, Battlestar Galactica or something, which I I, what I enjoy about this is that this is almost a Sicilian obsession of yours that, you know, it's been over a decade since that show has went off the air. I haven't written about it in that amount of time. Um, And yet you just you just can't let go. You're just carrying receipts around and and like you're kind of like quite some time. You're like every time I go past your office at AI, you're doing pull ups like Robert De Niro in Cape Fear, (laughs) and just muttering stuff about Battlestar Galactica. So what what what's what's your problem? I watched the show for the first time in
0: 2015, um, and uh, then I read some Joda Goldberg commentary several years Mm -hmm. after that, and I walked away with the impression, uh, perhaps unfairly. that there were two great seasons of Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. and then in season three they decided to turn the show into a little parable about how terrible the Iraq War was, uh, and everything
1: um, went off the rails. That's largely correct. I mean, maybe it was three seasons, but yeah, yeah, that's my te- my take, or my that's what was my take, which is it started as I, I wrote, and the was it Ronald Moore, the creator of the show, Ronald D. Said, Ronald D. Moore. Yeah, used to say in interviews how how grateful and excited they were by the support from places like National Review for Battlestar Galactica, and that was basically me. So I loved mm-hmm. the first couple seasons. I thought it was the best show on television for a while. Really well done. Great, great show. And and then they 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 uh, they they pissed it all away, and um, with the Battle of New Arakica, New Caprica, uh, Arakica. Yeah, I I understand. I understand
0: what you're doing there. Uh, So I rewatched Battlestar Galactica recently, Uh and got through the first two seasons. So this is fantastic. God, this is so great. I actually even considered, based on your views Mm -hmm. and our conversations about this back in uh, 2016 or 2017, just stopping. Uh, Mm -hmm. But you know the you know the 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 iPad automatically loads the next episode. Mm -hmm. The season finale for season two. Uh, they arrive in, in New Arachica. Uh, and you know, I uh, uh, let it let let it roll out into season three. And I was shocked to discover that they are on New Caprica for two episodes in season three. Is that right? Okay. And then they are back on the Galactica in mm-hmm. a phenomenal sequence, by the way where Adama drops the Galactica Mm -hmm. down from outer space in a free fall to Mm -hmm. get as close as possible to the surface of New Caprica and allow all the Vipers to to get off off the Battlestar uh, to engage the Cylons and then jumps away right before the Galactica crashes into the ground. One of the best scenes I've ever seen in a science fiction show. Uh, Evacuates... Everybody off the surface Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: jumps away and Mm -hmm. then we're back in outer space and the uh, analogies to uh, uh, the U S occupation in Iraq
1: um, uh, are, are over two episodes. Okay. So that's, I mean, again, it's been a long time and I'm sure I wrote this right around the time of that. Those episodes were airing, but that's, we're talking about my argument and commentary Right, which was about a specific thing, and also the response from the left that that had a, that loved this turn. My broader critique is that one of the most like one of the one of the greatest things that George Lucas ever did in Star Wars is just that first sentence: "A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away." It just completely gave the audience permission to buy that they were seeing something that they didn't have to bring anything into the theater with them. To, to have a, a roller coaster ride kind of thing. The brilliance of the original first two seasons is that opening thing with the Cylons where they say, and they have a plan, mm-hmm. and that turned out to be a lie, and they did not have a plan. <laughs> that was very clear, and not just in two episodes. <laughs> the whole thing was just a lie, and they got. And, and I would argue I, again. I have not rewatched it. Um, but I would argue that what they ended up doing with the Cylons, where there are now good Cylons and bad Cylons and, oh, isn't war complicated and morally weird and blah, 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 Oh, and there are human traitors and good humans and, and <laughs> oh, everything's gray and nothing really matters and, you know, like, let's just sit here waiting for Godot as we try to figure out how to friggin' end this thing. And uh, that profound moral ambiguity that began with a show where a really hot Cylon babe snap the neck of a baby. Just as like it just like to set tell the audience these are bad people are bad creatures. And then all of a sudden they threw all of that moral clarity away. It's very much like what happened to to Star Wars during the Iraq war years. I mean, I know you were in grad school looking at long columns of numbers or whatever and Mm the Greek symbols, but like some of us were dealing with these cultural things at the time. And uh and uh um in one of the the, the the star wars prequels um young obi-wan kenobi is arguing with anakin skywalker later to become darth vader and uh if you're not with us you're against us if you're not with us hey, right. so anakin skywalker says if you're not with us you're against us and and obi-wan kenobi says only a sith deals in absolutes now dude like the entire a, moral that, that, that framework overt. <laughs> of Star, again, because again, this was supposed to be a reference to George Bush's, you know, uh, yeah. Bush doctrine stuff, which was about foreign policy. It wasn't about domestic crap, mm-hmm. but that's a whole other argument. They threw in the entire, not just like thematic framework of the Star Wars universe, but the eschatology and the theology of it, which is like, there's a good, there's a light side, and there's a dark side. And you can't go over the dark yeah. side. It was all about absolutes. And just to get a cheap little ding that was as badly written as I hate sand at the Bush administration, they threw all of that away. And that is sort of part of my complaint about the new Iraqis stuff is that they had to all of a sudden make the Cylons into morally complex, like really what would be so terrible about sharing society with the Cylons, they only use thermonuclear weapons to destroy ninety-eight percent of humanity. Why should we hold that against them? Um, that so is my problem. I it became morally lost. I agree
0: with you. I agree with you about the Obi-Wan Kenobi line, uh, uh, and about Star Wars.
1: I, I think that all right. It's been great to have re- Michael Strain on the show. <laughs> <Go on>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> re rewatching it i think mm-hmm. that they dealt better with the plan issue mm-hmm. that i that i had remembered uh and they dealt with how did they by, deal with the plan
1: issue because i can't remember i was so disgusted they, by then that maybe i was being unfair how did they deal with the plan what was the
0: plan They dealt with it by there was a there was a there was apparently there was kind of a cult uh following that mm-hmm. developed around caprica six and around boomer because they had lived with the humans for so long, and the experience of living with the humans um, uh, made Caprica Six and Boomer uh, think differently about about what the Cylons were were doing, which was trying to you know kill every last human being uh, in the galaxy. Boomer eventually. Uh, uh, aligned herself with brother, with brother Cavill. So she had quite, she had a, she, she had a you know, a, a full arc. Um, and, and Caprica six ended up aligning herself with, with the humans uh, and, and actually, and actually fighting to, to get, to get Hera back um, in, uh, in, in, in the final battle. Uh, but they, they dealt with that better. The moral ambiguity argument is a, is a good one. And, that was, in fairness to the show, in the third and fourth seasons, that was a constant theme. That's why they ended up. That's that, that, That's why there was the mutiny when mm-hmm. Tom Zarek and and Lieutenant Gata uh, tried to kill Adama and tried to take over the Galactica and tried to assassinate Laura Roslin and did all that. It was precisely because of what you're saying that Adama and Roslin had 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 forgotten apparently that the Cylons killed. You know, ninety nine percent of the human race on 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 twelve worlds, and you know what on earth is going on, and you know yada 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 yada. So they 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 dealt with that courageously,
1: um, and and but head on. And up, and but they ended up. I the people who the people who wanted to hold the grudge kind of lost that argument. No. Oh, totally. I can't remember. They got,
0: they got they got they got spaced. Right.
1: Um, so like, but like, wonder, I'm sorry, I mean, no, but, but like. Silence think killed the 98% of humanity, and we're supposed to be like, well, sure, the silence made some mistakes, but that's why pencils have erasers. I mean, what the
0: frick? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about the neck snapping, right? Think about the neck snapping. So that was Caprica 6 who did the neck snapping. And yes, right? Like, you're watching that, and you're thinking, what a horrible, horrible, you know, monster, obviously horrible thing. You know, but, but – Maybe what Caprica 6 was doing was trying to avoid having that little baby burned to death in a nuclear holocaust. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe it was an act of mercy. I think that moral ambiguity was there from the
1: very beginning. You are Um, going native. You're Cylon. You're pro-Cylon. And like, (laughs) I I, I want nothing more to do with it. No, look, I mean, look, I've heard that argument about that. But look, there were lots of things. Like in the first couple of seasons, the the hot Cylon babe, when she was having sex, her spine would glow red. And like, which seems to me that physiologically, if your spine glows red, that is an indication that there are other things going on with your anatomy and your physiology that are detectable to suggest that you are not fully human. And yet later it became a thing because it became a plot line necessary to like, like you couldn't tell whether they were humans or not, which is just, it's like, that's holodeck stupid. And, um, my point is, is like they they told me, like I one of the reasons why I wrote a cover story for National Review saying that Breaking Bad was the greatest television show ever made, and I I I still hold to that. I think it's better than Sopranos and better than mm-hmm. The Wire in a specific sense. Another
0: another another incorrect opinion.
1: They didn't like like they had a they had a plan when they made Breaking Bad, it was a full novelistic story arc with a beginning, a middle, and the end that went over several seasons. And I love that, the ability to sort of not lose sight about where you want all of these characters to end up like five seasons from now and make it compelling all the way through and make it believable to see this guy, this good man turn evil as like a truly classic novel. Um, that is so hard to pull off. Battlestar, Galact- Battlestar Galactica with that whole "we ha- the, and they have a plan stuff, signaled to me that they had an idea of where they were going and then it became very clear beyond the second or third season that they were just making stuff up as they went along they were getting distracted by stuff in the news they were getting distracted by you know the praise that the show was getting and they tried to be more than what they set out to be and i think they got lost in the weeds and that's my fundamental complaint about the show and I now I and me. also that it Reveals that you are actually on the side of genocidal androids, <laughs>
0: um, which I, I think that's grist- a reasonable view, but overstated. I was re- the 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 Cylon anatomy point is is very well taken, um, and you know how you know how is it that Colonel Ty was a Cylon and he known Billadama for thirty years and right. you know he, you know physically cha- all that sort of stuff, right? Uh, I think that point is very well taken. I was I was really impressed with the uh, with the with the ability of the show to tie up the loose ends. It could be it could be I've just been so scarred by how terrible Lost was that mm-hmm, my sure. bar is too low. But they they tied up the Opera House stuff. They tied up the final five Cylon stuff. Really really nicely, um, uh, and um, they. You know they they managed to kind of maintain in a really interesting way this uh, this 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 mystery in the show Uh, uh, this divine hand at work in the show. Um, They tied up the Starbucks story arc in 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 a way that I thought was really was much more compelling upon the rewatch than I than I had thought it was because you had poisoned my mind the first time I watched it uh, with Um. your with your lies.
1: So, but look, look, I agree. Look, look, space Mormons is a very compelling idea, and um, uh, and the acting was still good. The cinematography was still good throughout. I mean, there are reasons to watch it. And um, in the realm of like science fiction shows, it dropped from being, in my you know my lights, an A plus, which I do not give out lightly, to you know over the end, it ended as a B minus C plus. That's still much better than the vast majority of sci fi shows that almost never attain. A plus status um, or even escape C plus status. All right, but that's, that's, since we're, we're doing this and like if any listeners that we haven't lost already want to hear more, um, this will be,
0: this will be, this will be the most listened to episode you ever recorded. Uh um, this, this is what the people want.
1: So I have complicated opinions about foundation, which I have watched. Um, <laughs> so here's the, here's the thing. Did you read the books? Oh, yes. Okay, so they that's, changed the, my that's it. my life. Then I'm, uh, see, what is with you and Paul Krugman? Like, you both want to be Harry Seldon, and this makes I me nervous. This about Paul
0: Kr- I learned this about Paul Krugman pretty I I, I, was, I, was, I was already, I was already a, a, a practicing economist, but I learned this about Paul Krugman, and it, it made me really question <laughs> my, my, own, Your my own life path. But I read these books, and in, 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 uh, I started reading them when I was a fifth grader, and I reread them again my uh, first year um, out of college, and they they have they had a and, and by, by the books I don't I don't just mean the Foundation trilogy I there are about fifteen uh, books and I, and I and I and I reread them all and they they had a huge impact on me.
1: Okay, so I I have no complaints then because I was going to say I kind of like the show but I never read the books. And but mm-hmm. my I know enough about the books because I know enough about sci-fi and I have enough friends who always read Foundation stuff and all that that I completely understand why you would think the TV show is a hate crime against the books. That's totally mm-hmm. fair. But having never read the books, I've the first couple episodes. It was a little like Westworld for me, mm-hmm. where yeah, yeah. you know, and my position on Westworld was rarely have I found um, a TV show that holds my attention so well without holding my interest. Um, and uh, and I felt that way about Foundation. I had no idea what that was going on. It was really weird the way it skipped centuries back and forth and all of these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, I, I have to say, I was like I was w- looking forward to the next episode to see what happens. I mean, I hate it. almost everybody in the show. Um but um, I enjoyed it, but like, I get it. it's 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 total deviationism from from, you know, the Canon. So I knew Maybe. that they would. I, I knew that there was no hope
0: for them to make uh, to make the, the to make a, a a a television version of the novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, no hope of success at all. No chance for many reasons. You know, completely impossible. Um, and so I went into it thinking, uh, okay, I'm going to approach this as a science fiction television show inspired by Foundation. Mm-hmm. uh inspired by the books, and I watched the first three episodes and thought that even even with that, it was just a terrible television show. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'm on episode six or seven, something like that, and I think it's I think it's improving. I think there's actually yeah. I think there's actually hope. I think there's actually hope for it.
1: I, I that's how like, I mean. That's basically how I feel. It's like it's I get it now. Okay, here's what they're trying to do, and Um, and they must have spent just a ton on the thing Um, but also it's like I've been watching Raised by Wolves on HBO Mm -hmm. which I would not have watched except for the fact that it was done by Ridley Scott and I'd seen it advertised a bunch of times and I thought it was like some family drama or some like you know nature thing and then it turns out it's a very 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 bleak sci-fi show. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so alternating between episodes of that and and Foundation. Foundation is actually uplifting compared to Raised by Wolves But it's um I don't I'm mean, like I, I I would I would watch the second season of Foundation.
0: Yeah. I am, I'm not quite through the first season yet, but that's but that's that, 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 that that's about where I am at this point.
1: Um all right, so Just because it's it's just hanging out there. You say you were very disturbed that Paul Krugman really liked the <laughs> foundation novels. To be fair to Paul Krugman, there was a time when Paul Krugman was a very reasonable economist. Oh right? yes.
0: Outstanding. Yeah, in the nineteen nineties, some of his calculus. stuff,
1: you know, his stuff on, you know, the the what I can't remember the title of it, but you know, the myth of competitiveness was had a big impact on me and was very good. And his criticisms of like the you know in the Clinton years were were on point. And then he I mm-hmm. think he just got drunk on partisanship and has spiraled out like Darth Vader's TIE fighter at the end of, you know, Star Wars. But um, it does suggest that, you know, there is something in the psychology of you sophisters and calculators, as Edmund Burke would describe you, um, that wants to guide, that thinks that you can reduce all of humanity down to some sort of algorithm that only you comprehend and that you have so there's sort of prophetic insight and wisdom into... Um, society. Does, well, unlike
0: when Asimov was writing the novels, we now know that that is in fact correct.
1: <laughs> you don't actually believe that, do you? Uh,
0: I, I, yes, I do believe it. To and be, and to you, you
1: you're, a, you're a mass, you're a regularly attending mass going Catholic, and you don't, <laughs> and you don't burst into flames when you try to translate it all onto math.
0: I think, um, I think that, I think that, uh, that economics can, I think that, I think that, 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 that economic analysis can do a, a very impressive job at understanding what has happened in the past. Um, and I think, you know, a surprisingly impressive job, uh, at understanding what has happened in the past. Um, and I what has think happened economically
1: that, in the past or what has just happened in the past? Like you think, uh, the, you think history more, is reducible the simply to economic understanding of things?
0: More the former than the latter, but both. Um, uh-huh. uh, you know, so, so World War One. You think
1: you think economics has the most to say about World War One?
0: Um.
1: Damn it, Strain! Answer the question. Do I think do I think economics <laughs> has the
0: most to say about World War One? Uh, I think economics has a lot to say about about. The yeah, I think economics has a lot to say about the 1910s, 20s, and 30s.
1: A lot, of course, it does, but it like, uh, like, yeah. it, 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 like, are you know, Gavrilo Princip didn't shoot Archduke Ferdinand b- b- primarily because of economic considerations. Um, the, that's true,
0: I agree with that. Um, but I also agree <laughs> that, um, that, uh, I mean, this gets you to the great man theory of history, right? And Uh I used to be a very big, you know, a big proponent of the great man theory of history. Um, And now you're a vulgar
1: Marxist pro Cylon, Cylon genocidal uh, uh, would be math God.
0: This is very disturbing. Again, I think that's, I think that's overstating it a little bit, but essentially
1: (laughs) correct. (laughs) Oh, we're going to have to have this argument at greater length. Um, because I, I think economics is really important and it tells you a lot of really important things about a lot of really important things, but it's pretty silent about a lot of really important things as well. And to factor in, to have a, a large explanation about how important things happened. I, I think economics is necessary but not sufficient. And I, I'll just leave it at that. I agree with that. The most
0: important things, of course, uh, economics is completely silent about, but so are the other social sciences. Oh, sure. Uh, and so, uh, to a large extent, are the humanities.
1: Um, just out of curiosity, since this is something like, economists are sort of famous for considering themselves the most serious social science, right? The most empirical social yeah. science. Yeah, that's um, also awesome a fact. Um, that I think is a defensible proposition. Uh, mm-hmm. What would you say? are so, if e- 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 economics is a, is a ten, as in the most empirically grounded social science, you know, where would you put the others going down to zero?
0: Um, political like is science. political
1: science, at, like eight, or is it like a three?
0: Uh, oh, well, it depends on the political science that's being practiced. Um, but on average political science at this point is probably a six. Mm -hmm. I would say psychology is probably a four. Uh, sociology is probably down to a, to a, to, you know, a negative number at this point. (laughs) Uh, it's retarding our understanding. Uh uh that's I think that's a reasonable uh a reasonable rating.
1: Okay, so uh listeners who want to have arguments with Michael Strange can contact him via the American Enterprise Institute. Uh yes, my Michael- email address
0: is Birch at dot <laughs> Birch at aei.org. Don't forget the H. Uh,
1: uh, yeah. So that's, that's a friend of ours. Who's the, a vice president at, at AI and he loves getting email complaining about scholars. It's like his favorite thing. So, um, and we're going to leave that in the show just so you know, and we're actually <laughs> going to put Jason's email in the show notes. Um, so people can find it. <laughs> and, uh, um, Michael, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Um, and, uh, thank you for doing this at short notice. Um, and obviously we'll have you back on to, 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 you know, maybe we'll just do an episode of why, what, why, and why is Michael Strain so wrong about so much? And you know, we'll just we can of, do that. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that would yeah. be
0: that would be illuminating about your flaws uh, and misjudgments.
1: I, I have no flaws. Um, at least I, I acknowledge my flaws. Um, I have no, <laughs> I have no grand unifying theory about about how to explain everything or reduce it to some sort of <laughs> mathematical bumper sticker. You cold, inhuman <laughs> bastard. Um, but be that as it may uh, Michael thanks again for doing this really appreciate it and we'll have you on again soon Jonah live long and prosper okay so uh, Dr. Strain who I had not known until this morning uh, mark it down December 7th the day that will live in even more infamy uh, that he was one of history's greatest monsters um, and that I have to do everything I can to make sure that he doesn't get total power Um, but you know given his professional trajectory, I don't think he's in line to get total power anytime soon. So not to worry too much. Uh, but um, uh, it's great to have him on. Um, I, I, I hope we didn't lose too many listeners during the Battlestar Galactica stuff. Um, and again, if you have uh, problems with any of his takes, including the social science stuff, um, you can direct it to him or to Jason Birch at the American Enterprise Institute. And, um, and I can report confidently that uh downtown Bozeman handles snow better than Washington, DC does. I know a lot of you find this shocking. It handles it even better than Atlanta does. Uh no, I was just really impressed. I was up very early. I was um outside with the dogs around, I don't know, 6 a.m. a little before that. And all sorts of people downtown shoveling snow, uh trucks going through, plowing. And it wasn't a huge snowstorm. It was just just enough that it was going to make the roads icy if you didn't do something about it and the sidewalks, I see if you didn't do something about it. And like they've just got it down. It's impressive. And um and this is a great town. Um I wish I had more time and bandwidth to do um more touristy stuff around here. But it's um I got a lot of work to do and so does my wife. And and Pippa is too limpy to take on any major, major sort of like uh, trail adventures anyway. Um, but, uh, um, I will be hopefully recording from the road again for the, th- well, not hopefully I will be recording. If I'm recording at all, I'll be recording from the road again on Thursday or for the next podcast, next remnant. Um, and, um, I'm going to try and hit all of my, uh, G file on whatever other deadlines, but you know, it just occurs to me that none of you need to know any of these things and I just shouldn't keep you on here any longer than I, than I need to. Um just to ramble endlessly. So thank you so much for listening. Uh please become a dispatch member if you can. And um uh you know, give us uh reviews on iTunes and Spotify and all those kinds of places. If you're inclined to give us nice reviews, that would be great. If you're not inclined to give us nice reviews, then uh then you know, don't. Um oh, one last thing. So I haven't listened to it yet, um, but apparently uh, David French and uh, Sarah Isger on the Advisory Opinions podcast talked about how they want to make uh, they want to sort of defeat or eclipse or overtake the remnant as the flagship podcast of of the Dispatch, and um, you know I actually don't mind calling the Dispatch podcast the flagship podcast of the Dispatch because you know flagships, is my understanding of naval or, uh, Starfleet, uh, nomenclature works. The flagship doesn't necessarily have to be the most powerful ship. Um, it's just rep, it just, it's the flagship It represents, you know, the, the effort. And so if we want to call the dispatch podcast, which is, you know, um, the most, you know, it's got the name and the title. if We want to call it the flagship. That's fine. But if, you know, if Sarah and David really think that they're going to overtake this podcast, I mean, that's, that's fine. I want them to try, you know, as a founder of the dispatch, you want people to be incentivized to do the best they can and grow as much as possible. Um, And that's great. But, you know, their niche podcast is very good. I listen to it often. Um, uh, I find it very useful. It's got a great following among law nerds and, um, and sometimes their general interest stuff is very good. Uh, but in comparison to the Remnant, you know, it's basically, it's great. It's great for what it is. It's like the least dented can on the 50% off shelf at the supermarket. And, um, and that's great. But, you know, the Remnant is the Remnant and our, my listeners are the best. And I don't begrudge Remnant listeners uh, for also listening to AO. I encourage it. But, um, you know, let's just be a little serious about all these kinds of things. So with that, uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, Thanks again for all the support, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. I have my backup going. Discursions are allowed and encouraged, and um, you're an old pro, so f*** you. Let's just do it. Ready?